If you have your scriptures with you this morning, turn them to the end of the book of 2 Thessalonians. We'll be finishing up both our study through 2 Thessalonians, but also our studies through both of the Thessalonian correspondences today. Uh, We'll be reading shortly verses 6 through 15. If you don't have an ESV Bible or you don't have a Bible with you, it doesn't have to be ESV, uh, the Bibles in the, the pew in front of you, you can find 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 on page 990 of those Bibles. One of the best things going on the internet is uh, a YouTube channel created by Wired. I'm sure that they have other portions of their YouTube channels for other things that are probably not as good as this, but they have a section of their channel devoted to experts in certain fields. And what those experts do is they take their expertise and they then analyze different aspects of movies and TV in light of their expertise. So you've got this pretty well-known linguist talking about how actors and actresses use dialects and accents in acting. You have former CIA agents looking at spy movies and spy shows to say what is real and what is not. Legal experts weigh in on what actually happens in the courtrooms and how that matches or doesn't match what happens in real life. And of course, medical experts weighing in on how medicine is portrayed in these shows. And from what I understand on this last count, as won't probably be a huge shock to you, the medicine that you see on TV does not look much like the medicine that's actually practiced in real life. Most TV shows that are based in hospitals or centered around medicine contain little actual real medicine in them. The operations don't go as they normally would. The diagnoses don't look like they regularly would. They're much more far-fetched, which is to make things in TV gasp more dramatic than they would be in real life, which is probably for the best because people wouldn't tune in to watch four hours of people sitting in a waiting room moaning, so better to get on with it. There is something that they usually get right, though, and that is, especially in these medical mystery shows, the symptoms that are presented to the doctors are always sort of plumbed lest there be something deeper going on. This is true in real medicine, and it's true in the fake TV and movie medicine as well. If you're suffering from a sprained ankle or you broke your hand, the symptom and the cause likely go hand in hand, and the treatment is the same. However, if you come in with something like severe stomach pain or severe abdominal pain, it is unlikely that any doctor or nurse is just going to give you a roll of Tums and tell you to go on your way. They don't do that because if something is wrong internally, if something is infected, your appendix or your gallbladder, they need to isolate that. They need to know what it is, lest it rupture and you go into sepsis. Now, part of this is because they don't want you to die, and part of them not wanting you to die is so that your family doesn't sue them, but nevertheless, they still want to take care of that thing. They don't just treat the symptom, but they they feel like the symptom is indicative of a deeper and underlying cause. The passage that we have before us today works like this, I think, in a way. There is an obvious manifested symptom of problem within the Thessalonians. There are people in Thessalonica who are mooching off the generosity of others. They are eating bread that does not belong to them. 
And for this, there is an obvious and clear solution. But the question that confronts us is this. Are we dealing with a sprained ankle when we deal with this issue of work? Or are we dealing with internal injuries that are manifesting themselves in one particular way? Is it just the surface issue that we need to deal with and that Paul needs to deal with? Or is there a deeper problem going on which, left untreated, could worsen and threaten the health of the body of believers in Thessalonica? You're insightful people. Given the fact that I just went through that entire introduction, you're probably not thinking that it's just a surface issue. So let us see if we can spot what that deeper issue is as we read 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. Read with me if you would Paul's words. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. As for you, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is the word of our God. The first thing I think that we need to turn to is this symptom. What is the symptom that Paul is dealing with? Given the text, it's a little bit hidden from us. I will kind of walk us through this. We've dealt with this particular word back in 1 Thessalonians. We're dealing with it again in 2 Thessalonians. He says that there are people walking in idleness. It is probably better to put that as people who are unruly or disorderly. The symptom, by the way, that that disordered nature of people in Thessalonica does not seem to have been acute, but it was chronic just keeping with the medical terminology, it didn't just pop up. It's not something new that Paul is hearing about. We have multiple indications that this is an ongoing problem and something that Paul knew was a possibility of happening. So if you look for just a second at Paul's famous command in verse 10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. He doesn't say, I give you this command to help you with this problem that's come up. He says, when we were with you, when, when I was working among you, the first time I saw you, in those three weeks, I gave you this command. Something about the Thessalonians, something about the people there made Paul think that this was going to be a necessary command to give them. We don't see this kind of command coming up elsewhere. 
We don't see it in the Roman correspondence when Paul writes to Rome or when Paul writes to Corinth. We, we don't see this in Colossians or Ephesians. This appears to be a command that Paul gave to them, likely when he was there because he noticed something in them that needed this command. And it's kind of phenomenal to go through in those short three weeks what Paul taught to these people. He taught them about the goodness of work and the importance of work. He taught them about the day of the Lord. He taught them about the timing of the return of the Lord, of the eternal penalty of of disavowing the gospel, of the meaning of the gospel. Indeed, even how to live a life pleasing to God. He passed along to them in three weeks all of the traditions that were given to him that they would need to walk faithfully before the Lord. All of this, and that is quite a workload, all of it on top of his other actual workload of making tents. No doubt when Paul says that we worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you, that we toiled and labored, that was not just with his hands, but it was also in teaching them. So he gave them this command. Something was there amongst them that, that Paul understood they needed this command, but then in 1 Thessalonians, he must have been told by Timothy that this command needed to be reaffirmed. In 1 Timothy, or excuse me, in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, he tells them to admonish the idle. That word idle there is, again, this idea for unruly or disorganized. They were told, you have these unruly people amongst you, you need to get them in line. You need to admonish them. Apparently, that didn't take. Paul clearly thought that his earlier command mixed with what happened and what he spoke of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 would be enough to settle the issue. We don't know exactly how 2 Thessalonians came about, but supposing that Paul sent Timothy back with the first letter, when he hears back from Timothy, he hears that neither the original command nor the encouragement to admonish the idol have actually done the job. And so Paul sets out to write a much lengthier response to this problem. And we need to realize that this is indeed a serious problem. You could read this and think of all of the churches that Paul's going to go to. He's going to go to Corinth. He's going to go to Colossae. He's going to go to multiple different places. And they're going to have grievous sins. The, the letter of First and Second Corinthians is just ripe with a church that is troubled. He's going to have the Galatian churches, which is not one church, but multiple churches getting suckered into a false gospel. It's easy to think that this particular issue is a light one. It's, it's a minor sin, if it's a sin. But Paul doesn't leave that implication at all. The symptom is indeed serious. Paul saved this for last, and it seems to be, quite frankly, the thing that the letter is driving toward. The other things, as important as they are, the timing of the return of the Lord, they're being able to persevere through persecutions, knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ would show up and would avenge their sufferings, I think are sidelights to what he has to write here. Frankly, the the idea that he writes this last gives us something of this 
impression. Typically, writers, especially ancient writers, would put off the most important argument or the most important issue for the last part of their letter. But what's even more amazing is how Paul leads up to this issue. You'll notice if you go back into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that he ends the talking about the date of the return of the Lord, and then immediately goes into talk of prayer and talk of encouragement. He tells them to stand firm. He tells us that they will be encouraged and affirmed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He then asks them for prayer, reminding them of their partnership, and then re-encouraging them of the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ to be faithful in all that he's asked them. I have no doubt he did that because he knew precisely that the last thing he's going to mention is going to hit some of them fairly hard. And you might think of that as, very cynically, as buttering them up. And Paul wasn't saying anything that wasn't true. Paul just knew that they were going to need to be encouraged to listen to what he was about to say. It talks about the seriousness of what Paul is saying here. And what's more, the very somber and weighty way that Paul introduces this topic makes it clear that this is not an easy thing or it's not a light thing. It's not a small and simple sin that he's dealing with. Notice how he begins this. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like we come with the authority of Jesus to tell you what we're dealing with, but what's more is even appealing to the name of the Lord makes it seem like If you are out of step with this command, then you're out of step with the name of God. You're out of step with the name of the Lord. You're out of step with how Christ walked. You bring shame on the name of Jesus Christ. You defame his glory and his character. This is like going to the dermatologist for a mole that's growing on your shoulder, thinking that it's no big deal, and having her look at it and say, no, 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 no. We gotta gotta deal with that right now. When Paul speaks like this, it's an indication that this is not something that is easy and and light and airy, but it has weight and gravity to it. So the symptom is chronic. The symptom is serious. But we don't know what caused it. It doesn't appear to just be laziness, although the English word idle kind of lends itself in that direction. I don't think that it was laziness. But truth is, we don't really know However, even though I think that there's deeper issues going on, we're going to belabor the fact now and we're going to come back to it later that it's a very easy symptom to fix. And we can't avoid it. If you can work, you ought to work. Christians who can work ought to work for the things that they enjoy in this world. If you don't work, you don't get to eat. Now, Even having said that, given ample and large Christian instruction, examples, exhortations towards charity and mercy, we would think wrongly if we applied this universally to every situation and took it out of context for the context that Paul is writing to. Listen, you don't get to look at grandma in the nursing home and say, there's some construction work I need before you get your porridge right? Like, she gets to eat. She gets to eat. What Paul is doing is writing to a group of people who can work, but who are refusing to work, and instead relying on the generosity and the graciousness of others. What people in Thessalonica are doing 
is picturing themselves only and forevermore as the man who needs help. They are always the neighbor. They are never the Samaritan. They are never the one to give help and aid. So those who can work should. For those who cannot work, for those who are upon hard times, who are looking for work, who are attempting to work, who need help, for those who are unable to work because of physical ailments, whether it's old age or, or, or some other sort of disability that has come upon them, there is mercy, and that mercy is freely and lovingly given. But for those who can, you are expected to. We go from then the symptom to the source. If that is just a symptom of an underlying problem, what is causing that problem? What is the actual underlying problem? And how serious might this actually be? I, of course, think that there's an underlying problem here. I think that the idleness spoken of is just, or the, the inability or, or non-desire of people to actually work is one symptom of the problem. It's one, I would say, manifestation of the underlying problem. And if the source of that problem isn't dealt with, even if the problem itself is fixed, it's just going to manifest itself in some other way. So how do we know that it's more than just the fact that people are unwilling to work? Well, first... Again, the word that Paul uses in your English translations is idle, which makes it seem like it's just laziness, but that word really is more like unruly, that, that there is a fight going on. It's not just that people are lazy, but they are not doing what they have commanded. This word is used of people simply not doing what they ought to do. Troops running from battle, or people who sin. It's often associated with people who are filled with lawlessness. What's more, Paul clearly refers to the traditions. He's talking about the fact that they are not walking in line with the traditions that we've passed down. And beyond that, even imitating Paul. These are people who refuse to see what Paul has done, to see how Paul has lived, and to imitate him moving forward. So that question brings us to what is the actual problem? Now, historically, there is likely something that kicked this off. The problem is we have no idea what that is. So if you go to commentaries, there's going to be every commentary ever written has their own idea of what possibly could have been historically behind this. A lot of people want to think that it's the nearness of the coming of the Lord, that people thought that the Lord was right there, and because he's right there, we don't need to eat. Or, no. We don't need to work. But apparently they still needed to eat. He wasn't that close, but he was pretty close. Perhaps social contracts like patronages, perhaps associations and unions had something to do with it. Some believe that there's self-appointed apostles that are going around leeching off of people. Who knows? Truth of the matter is we don't know and likely will never know what the historical situation was that actually led people to thinking that this was okay but we can guess the source of it spiritually. And that is simply this. It is a frank and voluntary unwillingness to listen to what Paul has said and to imitate his way of life. It is an issue of sin. 
not of a particular sin, although it manifests itself that way, but it is an issue of a sinful attitude that is more fitting those who Paul just got done talking about as part of the rebellion than those who might be called children of God. And because it's an issue of sin and a sinful disposition toward God and toward the commands that God has given, getting rid of this one manifestation of it does not fix the underlying problem. It just makes it creep up in other places. This is why these people are unruly or undisciplined. It's not just that they're lazy. It's that they're not heeding what Paul has said. Paul has explained this issue to them, and they have not listened. Paul has handed the tradition down to them, but they have not received it. It's an example that Paul has left for them, but they have not followed it. Now, I want to make it clear, the problem isn't the sin per se but the sinfulness that lies behind it. When I was a pastor in Tennessee, I had a bivocational job at Papa John's. Many of you know that. And it afforded me at times very sort of personal conversations with people who worked there. I I managed at night usually, and that that meant that we had a very bare crew that worked there. And I got to work with people and and talk to them one-on-one. I remember a particular conversation with he was, wasn't a young man, but, but he was not an elderly man. And, and he talked about how his father would tell him about this, this very personal and very private sin. And, and he, he told him that if he did this, God would condemn him. And I remember the man talking to me about it, and he, he made it very clear that this is a, a very private thing. It's not done in public. It's very personal. It doesn't really affect other people, and, and honestly, it's a minor thing. And he, he looks at this, and he says, listen, would, would God send me to hell eternally because I did this one little thing? Yeah. Yeah, he would. But the problem is, for him And for everyone else who ever sins, we want to isolate that particular moment of sin as though it's isolatable. The problem isn't the sin. The sin is the manifestation of something deeper and more important. Yeah, you'll be condemned, but you're condemned because you're a rebel. You're condemned because you know that that is a sin. You're told that it's a sin. Paul has commanded the Thessalonians, you can't live like this and be part of the name of Jesus Christ. And they heard it. He wrote to them again. They heard it, and they rejected it. They hear the word of the Lord. They hear the commandment that has been passed down to them. They receive the tradition, and they said, no, we're not going to do that. Either we know better, or we just reject it right out of hand. It is nothing less than rebellion. There's something brilliant in the fact that the very first sin mentioned in Scripture is honestly, in the big scheme of things, so small. It's the stealing of fruit. It's it's not like Adam rose up and murdered Eve in the garden. It's not as though adultery was happening in the garden. It was simply the fact that God said, don't eat that fruit And they said, nah, we're good, we're gonna eat it. The brilliance of it was it showed the depth of the problem of sin is not the doing of it, but the thinking that you can do it. In the Garden of Eden, as the snake 
works his deception on Eve, already you have this increasing idea that I can be like God and I can trust myself and, and doubting the goodness of God and what he has said and what he has commanded, doubting his authority to make that command and the penalty of that command come to fruition. That is the nature of rejection and rebellion. The sin is just one manifestation of it. It's just one way that it pops up. But ultimately, the problem is that you reject the goodness of God, you reject his authority to tell you what you ought to do, and you think that you get to make these decisions on your own. It makes you a rebel to God, the king. It makes you a rebel to your creator. And it makes you a sinner worthy of condemnation because you have rejected the one true and living God. But there is, of course, the gospel that our Lord, knowing our sin, and what's more, our sin was an affront to him, that, that it's not as though Jesus as the son of God, or that before he became incarnated as Jesus, standing as the son of God from all eternity, what our sin really was was an affront to the father, but the son wasn't really affected by it. No, the son, hating our sin, knowing that we rebelled against him, came to us anyway and took upon our sin so that we would now be given freeness, that we would be given forgiveness from the sins that we have done, that our rebellion that should be paid for in our blood was paid for in his blood. And instead of giving us wrath for those who believe and trust in him, we are instead given hearts that long to do the bidding of God. The Spirit works in us so that we see the goodness of God. Our hearts are changed by the Spirit and continually remade by the Spirit so we see not just the goodness of God but the authority and the goodness of God that we are now not nearly as prone, although we're still prone, not nearly as prone to reject His Word. That is what it means to trust Him that we believe that he is good and that he does good. So the source of the problem is deep and it is nasty. And Paul seems to have every indication that it is much more than just their inability to do work or not desiring to do work. And that leads us then to the solution. What are they supposed to do now? Paul gives us five things that they're supposed to do. In verse six, he tells them, stay away. It's not just in verse six, it's actually in verse 14, and the fact that it comes at the beginning and at the end of this passage means that this is the first thing that Paul wants them to do. If you know of a brother, and we would like to say here, ESV, you've, you've got to update this, brother or sister, regardless of who it is, if there are any of them that are acting in an unruly fashion, you dissociate with them immediately. Not only does he say it in verse 6, but in verse 14, he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them. You're to cut yourself off from them, or we would put it a different way, you are to cut them off from you. There's something of an infection in the body. 
And the first thing that needs to happen is for that infection to be isolated so that its gangrenous nature doesn't spread. Because while these Christians were not following the pattern of Paul, as a general rule, Christians will follow the pattern that is placed before them. And they will follow Paul's pattern or they will follow the pattern of those who are unruly. And Paul says you can't follow them. Separate yourself from them. Paul tells them to isolate from these people for a couple of reasons. First, as we've said, it will keep this problem from spreading. It will clearly indicate that those who are acting in this unruly behavior, this unruly manner, will be isolated and the entire community will understand that that is not an appropriate way for us to live. It keeps everyone in the church accountable to know that that is not a way of walking before the Lord that is either acceptable or beneficial to anyone. And what's more, it shows the inevitability of such sin or the inevitable nature of such sin where that sin leads. Separation from the body of Jesus Christ forever. So as the body pulls that problem out and it separates from it, the idea is you get a temporal picture of what will happen eternally. That even in this book, Paul has written in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, that those who fight against the gospel will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And as his body in the world is the church, to be removed from the church is to be removed and to be warned that you will, if you persist in all of this sin, you will one day finally and ultimately stand aside from the glory of Jesus Christ. You will not be in the glory of his might. It is a temporal warning to come back to the Lord before eternal destruction comes to you. Now, it's, it's clear that Paul doesn't want to consider those who are unruly as outside of the body. He calls them brothers and sisters in verses 6 and verse 15. But you'll also notice that throughout the body of his warning here, Paul is incredibly cautious with how he speaks to these people. While he calls them brothers in verse 16, and at the end he says they are to be warned as a brother, in the middle, he never calls them brothers and sisters. In the middle, he talks to them, he talks to the entire body of Thessalonians, and he says in something like verse 11, there are some among you. In verse 12, he talks about such persons. And specifically, as you read in verse 13, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good, that seems to set aside some of them against the rest. Paul is at least very cautious about them. They need to prove that they actually take faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ through the commands that Paul gives as an apostle of the Lord seriously. And friends, we then need to show the same sort of carefulness and caution that Paul does when dealing with sin. It is easy at times to become passive and in our mercy allow such sin to fester. We start to affirm it in a manner of speaking by simply not disavowing it. 
Paul notes in this case, we must act to stop its spread by keeping others away from those who walk in such a manner. It must be removed from our midst. The second thing that Paul has for a solution is imitation. In verses seven through 10, Paul says, you ought to just do the thing that I did. You are to keep yourselves from those who walk this way so that you're not imitating them, but instead you're going to do what Paul did. And and I want you here, friends, to note that the great ways in which labor and toil, even of incredibly meager and ordinary ends, is good and glorifying to Christ. I have no doubt that there are many people in this room who in working day in and day out have asked themselves, what is the use of this particular thing I do to the glory of Christ? What is the usefulness of something so mundane? And I'm gonna be honest with you, almost all of our work in some large sense that we get paid for is mundane. It's just normal stuff. There's very little extraordinary that's going to happen in my life or in your life, and especially not Monday through Friday. But here, Paul gives the meekest work grave importance. It is a matter of love and care for the brethren. Tent making does not speak of the glory of Christ. But Paul is very clear. We made tents. We labored and toiled with our hands. We did this, not because making tents was important, but because in doing so, we weren't a burden to you. It is a sign of love. It is a sign of care for brothers and sisters in this church that we work with our hands. We work to make money so that we don't have to be a burden on them. There is no higher calling than love. And by working so that we can make money so that other people don't have to rely on us and what's more, so that we can then freely give to them. Man, that is one of the highest callings that you can possibly go to. And if that means you wash bathrooms to do that, glory be to God. So let us not imitate the world. The world is filled with people, not everyone, but it's filled with people who try to get as much as they can from all they can without paying the least for it. They are much like leeches and they suck until they are engorged to the breaking point and believe that it is the right and the responsibility of others to fill their bellies. This cannot be the way Christians behave. It can't be that way because we ought to love one another. We ought to love one another. It's worth noting that Paul, out of all the things he has to say, spends most of his time here. Thus, he's indicating what the real issue and the real solution is when he talks about not being a burden. This is the real issue. The underlying cause must be thrown away. They trampled on the traditions Paul brought them. They refused to imitate him. They neglected the instruction that he wrote to them. And they rejected the instructions that he spoke to them. Anytime we do such things, our sin will manifest itself in our lives. And when it does, simply dealing with that sin will not be enough. There's an underlying reason why. Walk in love before one another. And we do that by, Paul says, working 
in verses 11 and 12. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Such people, such persons, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. So you imitate Paul, you walk in love, and you work. It's interesting to note, Paul again implies that it's not laziness. It's a nice turn of phrase that the English can have a play on words just like the Greek does. You're not busy, but you're busy bodies. They didn't mind doing work. They didn't mind meddling in the affairs of other people. They didn't just want to sit on their their backside enjoying the Greek sunshine. They actually wanted to get out into people's lives, but it was simply to meddle in them. That's what this idea of being a busybody is, that they, they infest themselves into other people's lives and bother them. They are causing issues outside of just being a financial burden to others. Paul says, instead of meddling in other people's affairs, you should just work quietly. And here we have another indication that they were laboring, just not over that which is productive. They were simply laboring to cause trouble for others. So Paul is telling them, much more kindly than I'm about to, that they probably should just shut up and do work. And it will keep them from getting into trouble. And it will keep them from causing the trouble that they have done. Work quietly. Be quiet and eat your own bread. The world is filled with famous heists. And it's not just in TV shows, but it's in real life. There's a man named Gerald Blanchard, who's a Canadian thief, who spent most of his life doing sort of small to medium robberies. Although he did pull off one major robbery, He did this at the Schloss Schönbrunn, which was described to me as the Versailles of Austria, um, which doesn't mean much to anybody, um, but apparently it was quite the palace, and he actually stole something called the Sissy Star, which was a gigantic pearl surrounded by dozens of diamonds. And he saw it in this museum, and he decided, I'm gonna steal it. So he literally skydived onto the roof of the building, crawled in through, a window that he had unlocked when he went on the tour the day before and stole the thing and kept it for 10 years. Now, in the meantime, he was going around doing other jobs, and he was a thief in multiple other ways until the Canadian police caught him. Eh? Listen, the man worked, and he worked hard. He was an expert thief. He not only worked hard in planning, but he had to know all of the technology that they used to not only keep the thing in a safe, but how they protected it, how he could get around it. He then planned it out meticulously and worked at practicing so that he could do it. He's not lazy. He's just a thief. People across the board are almost always willing to work hard. It's it's honestly difficult to find a truly lazy person. Now think of the 20-year-old who lives in his mom's basement and plays Xbox all day. I'm telling you, I would say that kid, but that dude's not lazy. 
He will spend 16 hours of his day staring at a television screen, honing his craft, and sacrificing a number of other things like exercise, sunlight, actual relationships with real people, so that he can get better at this stupid thing. He's not lazy. This Gerald guy didn't steal the sissy star to make money. You know what he did with it? He took it back to his grandmother's basement, crawled underneath her house, cut out some insulation and stuck it there and left it there for 10 years. Just left it there. When the police found him, they asked him about it. He said, oh yeah, that. You have to go to my grandma's house in Winnipeg to get it. No one steals things and leaves them in Winnipeg. He did it because he loved to steal. And he worked hard at it because he loved it. People will work hard at the things that they love. It's not that they're not willing to work hard, it's that most people are not willing to love others. Gerald didn't care that he stole from people. The child who's grown, who is living in their parents' basement, who refuses to get a job and refuses to do what is required of him, it's not that, that he's necessarily lazy. Maybe he is. But it is precisely the fact that he doesn't love his parents enough to go get a job and to seek to make a living. Let us work hard, but not at meddling, not at unfruitful things. Let us work hard that we might love others better. Fourthly, we are to keep doing good. He says in verse 13, do not grow weary in doing good. You are to do good. Rather than meddling, rather than interfering in people's lives, our time should be taken up with doing good for people. Clearly, Paul means this not just as the antidote to not working, but also to all of the meddling that they're doing in people's lives. If you busy yourself with a job, you're not going to have time to get into trouble elsewhere. Friends, we ought to worry less about getting all the information for gossip and titillating details of people's lives as we can and start to concern ourselves with how we can spend our lives loving them and doing good to them. And finally, Paul says that we are to warn them. These people, Paul says, are not your enemies. He wants them to be warned as brothers, even if they are on the cusp of being taken out. We must do this whenever sin creeps into our midst. We warn, not out of some misplaced sense of wanting authority, or wanting to control everything, but we warn people who are in sin out of love. For we in faith know that the end of sin is nothing but death, and that obedience to the commands that God has given us is nothing but life. So we warn. And that is the thrust of Paul's admonition here. It is to warn, and the flip side of that is, it is not to condemn. So we can't let sin go on, but we also cannot just condemn it. He wants them to be brought back. Our first response to sin ought to always be kind and caring, cautious and loving, to try to win back the sheep that has gone astray, to pull our brother and our sister who is so carelessly playing with fire away from those flames. 
This is nothing less than another way that we do good in love. That is the solution. It's important to remind ourselves that the Thessalonians were what we might call a good church. Indeed, Paul just glows about this church. He loves them, and he loves the things that they're doing. And given some of the other problems that he ran into, we can understand why. Again, you don't have to look much further than the Galatian churches or the church in Corinth to know that this church actually started really, really well. They heard the word of God as a word from God. They responded to it in repentance and faith. They imitated Paul in, we would assume, the vast majority of things. They became witnesses of the glory of Christ to the world. They suffered And they persevered through that suffering for their confession of Jesus Christ faithfully and patiently. Yet for all of this good, they too needed to grow in knowledge. They needed to be encouraged in patience. They needed to be rebuked in their sin. None of us has arrived. None of us are outside of growing in knowledge and in love. None of us has perfected the Christian life. And while I have no doubt that most of you understand this, the point needs to be pressed. Friend, as long as you have breath in your lungs, keep learning and keep loving people. Press on and on and on. Never ever considered having arrived because you won't be there. That, as Paul says, in the heart of 1 Thessalonians is, I think, the core of both 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Telling us how it is that we go about pleasing God. That we do what we have been doing right continuously. Do it just as you are doing, but that in doing so, we might excel still more, pressing onward and onward and onward to do so more and more. Let us pray. Father, make it our heart's desire to please you, not our flesh. Show us again and again in your word what you would have for us, and then give us hearts that long to do those very things. We are creative, though, Lord. We we ignore, we explain away, we otherwise make a mess of the word that you have given to us. Let this not be so. But as people who come to you for instruction, we pray that your instruction might not just be sought, but might be used and applied to our lives and applied not for our own ends, to be wasted on our own worldly desires, but so that you might receive glory through the sacrifice of your son and the work of your spirit, even among sinners like us. These things we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is sovereign glorious and kind. Amen.